Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai, kake mai, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Tonight's story is all about the Pacific Golden Plover, or kūriri, which is one of the Arctic migratory shorebirds that spends each summer here. A team from the Pukoro Koro Miranda Shorebird Centre is fitting satellite trackers to 10 birds, and I'm off to find out more. I've come out to Miranda on the Firth of Thames to catch up with a group of people who are trying to catch some Pacific golden plovers. And it's evening and it's high tide and there are skeins of shorebirds, godwits and the like, swirling overhead in the distance as they move between the sandbanks and the neighbouring paddocks. There are some viewing hides where the people are positioned and I'm off to see if I can find Keith Woodley. Good evening. You arrived in time for some Miranda magic. I have arrived in time for some Miranda magic. What are you up to? Well, we've just been out here, staked around this whole area, trying to monitor movements of Pacific Golden Plovers. And uh, we've got a fairly good feel about where they like to be sometimes, but they always seem to confound us. How many birds are you talking about? There's about 50-odd on the Firth at the moment we know about. So that's 50 out of, uh, what are these all, godwits flying overhead? These are godwits flying overhead. You can hear them calling. What a wonderful sight, hundreds and hundreds of birds. Yeah, the sound of calls and the wings you can hear as they they fly over. So I've obviously arrived at high tide. Yes, the tide is about half an hour off full tide, and that's what's pushing all these birds into the the ponds over here. And a few people at the bird hides just generally um, watching, or are these mostly golden plover people? uh, Two of our team out there try and cover as much territory as we can and try and just work out if birds are coming into a certain area, when are they coming in, what sort of direction they're coming in from, how high are they flying when they come in. All of these factors can be used to, to assess whether or not you put up mist nets to try and catch them. So quickly, paint me the big picture of Pacific Golden Plovers. Well, for the New Zealand context, they're the fourth most numerous uh, species occurring here, the, of the, the Arctic breeding species. So number one, um, two and three are godwits? Uh, Bartow godwit, red knot, ruddy turnstone and Pacific Golden Plover in, in that order. And we've had flocks of 30, 20, 10, either here or another site over the other side of the bay at Piaco uh, this season. But they're, they're very distinctive. They, they, they may be in a flock, but they're always dispersed. They're always strung out along an area. Or if they're associated with a big flock of other birds, they'll be strung out along the edge of that flock. You don't see them sort of tucked in amongst all the mass of other birds like you would see godwits and knots, for instance. And so there's so much about these birds which is really quite different to other, other waders that we, we're, you know, we're familiar with here. 
Our Pacific Golden Plovers, the numbers have been falling quite dramatically in the last few years, and we don't know quite why. Um, but then all the populations of migratory shorebirds are falling in our flyway. And, and we think most of the reason is to do with habitat loss in the Yellow Sea, but um, well, here we've got some more, more of a flyover. Their wings make a wonderful quiet whoosh as they, they do. pass over. They do, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a sound you never tire of. Yeah. How many birds have you got here at the moment, just speaking um, more generally? Rough, rough guess. We've got uh, a couple of thousand red knots. With, there's about maybe 5,000 goblets, uh, possibly more now. The numbers are way down on what the, you know, I first came here 25 years, 26 years ago. And, uh, so 5,000 godwits now, what did you used to oh, have? Our average would have 10,000 on a, on a, you know, a tide like this. So the numbers have halved. Yeah. We've been joined down at the hide by Jim. So Jim, I'd better get you to say who you are. Jim Eagles. Other people do the work. I just have organised things. <laughs> so what motivated you to want to f- study the golden plovers? Well, I'm a journalist, really, um, retired, and I put out the magazine here, and I've been writing articles about the lesser-known of the migratory birds that come here, and I'll turn to the Pacific golden plover. found that over the last 30 years their numbers have dropped about 60%, but that's actually about all we know about them. We don't know where in the Arctic they breed or what route they take to get here or what route they follow to get back and therefore we don't know what the problem with them is. Various people told me the person to talk to was uh, Wally Johnson in Montana State University who's the world expert, studied these birds for 40 years, tagged hundreds of them probably to track them and I, I contacted him and he said well he didn't actually know anything about the New Zealand birds either. But if um, we got a program going, got some, raised some money and got some tags, he'd be very happy to come down. So we got a program going, um, raised some money and bought some tags and he came down. And it's turning out to be more difficult than you thought it was going to be? As, <laughs> as difficult as you thought it was going to be? Uh, well, it's been more fascinating than I thought it would be. I've had more fun out of it than, than I, I expected. But yes, it has been difficult. Um, they are so wary. I mean, Wally, for example, in, in Hawaii, they, he showed us a little video of them catching birds with a net gun on a traffic island outside a Kentucky fried chicken place. Here, they're, they're never closer than several hundred metres out on the mudflat, really. And they're very wary. They've got these big eyes, and any time anyone walks past or you try and set something up, you can see their heads come up and their eyes get even bigger, and you can see them looking at what are they up to. And then they buzz off. So last year we had Wally, we had his team of plover catchers from Hawaii. Uh, we had a number of New Zealand's leading banders and birders came down here and we got three. On the very first day we put up nets and got two. And on the very last day we put up nets and got one. Over All what time period? Uh, it was about 10 days, I think. We were, and we were out every day. We had cannon nets all around the ponds and everywhere, and none of them ever walked into the catching area. One day, it looked as though they might have. They were sort of starting to just edge up, and then a couple of young kahu flew over and spooked them, and that was it. 
So we never got anywhere near them with the cannon nets. We had volunteers out, led by Jojo Doyle, um, looking at what where they were flying from and to and the timing and so on. So we knew where to put the nets to have the best chance of catching them. And then in the evening, unfurl the nets and they hopefully come into land on schedule and fly into them. This is quite the stakeout, isn't it? Yes, it, yes, it is. And as happened last year, there's down at the entrance path to the, this reserve, there's two fingers of Saka cornea go out into the mudflats and they spent a lot of time there when they weren't feeding in the Saka cornea. So we mowed a couple of little paths down the Saka cornea where we could put the cannon nets. Um, and on Monday, which was the first day we went netting, was standing down by the entrance to the the path um, with Amanda, our shore guide, looking, and in they all came. There was a flock of 33 had been around. The whole 33 came in, landed between the two fingers, played around a little bit, and then walked into the Saka cornea. With the nets fired, we got three birds. So we got in one day what we got <laughs> in 10 days in, in the one go. But the problem is you can really only do the cannon netting once because after that the birds are spooked. And we're now trying to find out what their new pattern is, and we so far don't know. Now, Jim, since I haven't actually seen one of these elusive birds, can you describe them to me? They're about they're the same height, roughly, as a blackbird, but much stockier. And they're called the Pacific Golden Plover. Pacific, because they are, really are the bird of the Pacific. They breed in both um, Siberia and Alaska, and then spread out. Um, to escape the winter across the whole of the Pacific. And almost all the Pacific Islands actually have them as part of their mythology. They're often messages of the gods, sometimes the offspring of gods, and we're, we're at the far end of their range. So that's why they're called Pacific. They're called golden because particularly when they're in their breeding plumage, they have this beautiful black, gold speckled plumage. It is absolutely lovely. The males become very, when, particularly in breeding plumage, they get very strongly black markings along with the gold. The females less black but still beautiful. I mean, no doubt other people have got other birds they think are more attractive. I've come to think that they are the most beautiful of the migratory shorebirds that we have. Most of the time they're here, they don't have that full plumage. Because this is their off-season? Yes, it is, yes. And they breed in the Arctic. Um, most of the year it's under ice and snow and they wouldn't find anything to eat. So, yes, they spread out looking for somewhere to more pleasant. And, gee, isn't this more pleasant than an Arctic winter? <laughs> oh, listen to that. Thousands of birds just swirling around. Something spooked them. It's almost like smoke, isn't it? Yes, it is. The way is. That they swirl around in the sky. I think of it like aerial ballet, really. You see the ballet choruses going backwards and forwards, sort of dipping and swinging, except it's, an, it's in an additional dimension. So at low tide... There's vast expanses of mudflats here. These guys are spread right through the estuary. Yep. As, as the tide comes in, they're pushed closer and closer yeah. together. Yeah, yeah. So they, their food's only accessible when they can get out there. And, and of course, they, they don't have web feet, so they can't sit on the water. Truly, these are creatures governed by the tide. Their whole lives are governed by the tide while they're here. Kia ora koutou, a ko Amanda tōku ingoa, nō rotorua ahau. 
My name is Amanda Hunt. I work for the Pukorokoro Miranda Shorebird Centre as a shore guide. That's my best job ever. Over there, that was their really happy place on the other side of the water. Uh, and that's where we set off the cannon net. And they've been avoiding it but like the plague since then. So I gather you've been playing a key role in this Golden Plover project. Yes, uh, you could call me um, hopelessly addicted or obsessed, I think, uh, which is why I think I ended up with one named after me. So uh, basically I've fallen in love with them. So when I started working here at the beginning of last season, uh, we were just starting the monitoring of them and the the objective was to find out where they were um, spending the night or roosting so that we could catch them and put satellite transmitters on them. And so uh, one of our people had organised this uh, volunteer shift of people looking for where the kūrere were going uh, at particular times of tide and particular times of day and because I'm the shore guide here I'm usually down there at the hide um, before two hours before high tide and two hours after high tide because that's the only time you can see the kuaka and, and some of the other birds then they fly out to feed so because I was here anyway Jojo who was coordinating the monitoring and also has a bird named after her. You can tell those of us who are just completely too far gone um, because we have birds named after us. So Jim, Jojo, Amanda. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> They're uh, fascinating little birds. They're uh, really wary. I'm hoping they'll come back sometime, uh, but they're just fascinating. They're really beautiful. They're real little Houdinis, so it can be very, very hard to see where they're going. And we, like, we reckon they might go into another vortex or a parallel dimension because there'll, there'll be 52 of them on the mud and you're counting them. And you turn around, you get to the end, 51, 52, you turn back and 12 of them have gone. <laughs> so they sort of take off and they turn and they all go somewhere different and they... They tend to go at different times because they need a lot of personal space and almost impossible to catch. Now you did catch three at the beginning of the week. Have you seen any of them since? Uh, We've seen two of them. Uh, One of them um, I saw on the mud flats in front of the Godwood hide over there yesterday morning and we're pretty sure that bird's flying because earlier in the morning it was seen over here on this area that we call the Limeworks. So we're quite pleased because that meant that it flew over there. But the other two, we haven't seen them fly yet. Um, so one of them has been seen this morning um, and still perfectly well and healthy, but stretching its wings but not actually taking off because what happens when you capture them is they can get really stressed out and the species seems to be extremely prone to stress. And what happens is then the lactic acid builds up in their muscles and then it can make it very hard for them to uh, get strength. Sometimes they won't even stand up so it can take them a couple of days to get back to their um, previous movements and so uh, our our specialists are cautiously optimistic that they will um, get flying again but we're just keeping a really close eye on them. But the thing about these birds we know next to nothing about them but as a result of the three birds that were tracked out of uh, here from last season we now have a a, a full track uh, of at least one bird. In fact we learned just last night that one of the three birds is almost definitely back in New Zealand. Oh wow, so tell me what route did it go? Where did it go to on its travels? This is a bird called Jojo and Jojo left here and flew directly to Honshu in Japan and she spent a few weeks there and then he, it turns out it's a he, made its way up to Alaska and this bird spent about um, four or five weeks on Terrena which is an island in the Kiribati 
So right near the equator? Yes, and then it moved on to Tongatapu, where it spent the last few weeks. And we were starting to organise people to go out and try and find it. And then we got an um, indication yesterday that the last track of this bird two, two days prior put it halfway between Tonga and New Zealand. Two days later. It could be anywhere in New Zealand, but we assume it's more than likely it's come back to the Firth of Thames. You hope it's come back. <laughs> we hope it's come back to the Firth of Thames, yeah. Mm. Well, that's an epic journey. How big are these birds? Uh, these birds are, well, they're about maybe a blackbird size and body, body size, maybe a blackbird, something like that. Wow. They're, not, they're not particularly big. How many tens of thousands of kilometres is that round journey? Well, the, the flight from here to Japan is approximately 10,000 kilometres, which is very similar to the flight of the Bartel Godwits we tracked in 2007 and eight. And the journey back was that this bird is island-topped on the way back. It didn't do the non-stop flight. But that's still a distance of 11,000, 12,000 kilometres. They're pretty amazing birds. They are indeed. Mm. Now, tell me about Amanda, your namesake. Oh, you're going to wish she hadn't asked me this. I can just go on about her for, you know, 20 minutes. Off you go. <laughs> so... We had about 100 of them around, and we had the three birds with transmitters, which were Amanda, Jim and Jojo. Uh, and Jojo was hanging out at another roost at the mouth of the Piako River, but Amanda and Jim were here, and several small groups of the Kuriri left on their migration. You, you tend not to see them, but you notice the next day that they're not there. But Amanda and Jim... They were just here still all the time and we were getting really worried. There were maybe like 12 of them left here and Amanda and Jim were just chilling out and eating worms. Then I came along one morning and anyway I got out my scope and I saw Amanda had gone, which was so exciting because she was the first one to leave. Uh, the transmitters were being monitored by Lee Tibbetts up in uh, Alaska, but the birds to make the battery last, they were programmed to transmit once a day within the sort of three weeks when we expected the birds to be migrating to their staging grounds. But there need to be several fixes on the satellite. So it took a while to get the first uh, set of data and I was actually down here at the hides doing my actual job. And anyway, my colleague Chelsea sent me this text saying, we've just heard from Amanda, looks like she's on the way to Papua New Guinea. And it was just amazing. And so I raced back to, to the Shorebird Centre and, and we saw the satellite image um, on Google Earth. It was just amazing. Just It was the most exciting thing, I think, that's ever happened to me in a, in a work context. Uh, but then, obviously, the satellites got the next set of data and found she was in Japan. It was an eight-day non-stop flight. It's about 9,000, 9,500 kilometres, and she just flew the whole way. None of these birds can land at sea because they don't have webbed feet. So if they land on the sea, it's a one-way trip. So she just kept flying her little wings, and then she landed quite, quite near Tokyo, actually, on the coast. So there for a few days. And the next transmission we got from her had her in, in the middle of Tokyo, <laughs> in the only big park in that area. We're not sure if she actually landed there or just the transmitter happened to get her there. Uh, but we've got links with organisations all around the world on what's called the East Asian Australasian Flyway. So that's all the birds that are migrating from Alaska and eastern Siberia, uh, down through China and Japan, the Korean Peninsula, and down to Australia and New Zealand, and so we've got links with ornithological societies and birding organisations in each of those countries. So our counterparts in birds Japan, bless them, they all went out at lunchtime to this park to see if they could find her, and they couldn't. And then we didn't hear from her for about 10 days. It's extraordinary. We got this photograph from one of the birds Japan people of this bird 
in a rice paddy about 300 kilometres north of Tokyo. It was Amanda, and it was just the most extraordinary thing because we hadn't even had a satellite transmission from her, but it seems like half the Japanese birders and bird photographers were out all around the country trying to find the kuriri, or munaguru, I think is what they call them. And... Then she went to Russia and stopped on the Kamchatka Peninsula, which caused a bit of consternation because we didn't know if these birds bred in Siberia or Alaska or maybe both because studies of the Pacific Golden Plover elsewhere in the Pacific has shown that they're breeding in in both of those areas. So when she stopped in Kamchatka Peninsula, it was like, okay, so maybe she's a Siberian bird. But four days later, she flew over to Alaska. And when we looked at the records for what the wind had been like at that time, there'd been a very strong headwind coming from Alaska at that time, which would have been much too hard work for her to fly into. So she deviated and had a little bit of a stopover in Russia, a bit of vodka or something. They sent her some kind of Google Maps loaded. They sort of always know where there's somewhere else to go. Anyway, then she got to Alaska, and from there on it's a little bit unclear exactly what happened because she was pretty much in the same area for most of the time, but she did do a bit of a random wander around at some point, but then she came back, and she was in the same area for for quite a long time, so we're reasonably certain she's bred. Jojo, we're pretty sure she bred because Jim, the uh, random bird, also went to Siberia for three weeks, then went to Alaska because he'd obviously arrived too late for breeding. And he, up in northern Alaska, he hopped around quite a bit, whereas Amanda was always mostly within this four-kilometre radius. So it's impossible to be sure, but we, we think that she bred. And then she turned around and came back? Well, we don't know what she did after that because um, her last transmission was in Alaska. I think it was um, late August, early September, and we haven't heard from her since. I think that she left on her migration a few days earlier than the other birds, but we've got no way of knowing what happened to her then because we haven't had any more transmissions. I'm choosing to believe it's because the battery went flat. It's possible she fell out of the sky into the sea, but in my world she's always holidaying in Kiribati or somewhere in the Pacific. But unless she turns up here, uh, we probably won't know. And what happened last year is the numbers of the kuriri didn't peak until uh, late December and through January the numbers were still building. So it's possible that Amanda and Jim are still on their way. The Pacific Golden Plover team still have four satellite tags to deploy and when I head down to the viewing heights early the next morning, Keith is already there searching for the elusive plovers. Yeah. You've been out since so dawn today. We go out about just after five and we've been looking around this area to see whether any birds were using it um, early morning or overnight. But and the answer? We've found, we found no evidence of that so we haven't seen any birds at all. So. We need to keep looking through the day and try and find out where they might be. So how are you feeling about the mist netting tomorrow night then? Well, uh... You wouldn't know where to do it, is Yeah, this, this stage is problematic. You, know, you put nets up and, you know, it's like, you know, where you threw a party and no one came. When I left Miranda, the team was hoping they might mist net on Friday night. It's time for a quick phone call to Jim to find out what happened. We have decided not to try any more catching for a while, mainly because... After the cannon netting, the birds dispersed and they're only just starting to return to their normal patterns. And we're coming to the end of a period when the 
moon and tides are suitable for netting. So we're going to hold off now until the end of January. When's the new batch of birds going to get some names? Who are you going to uh, honour with a name this year? Um, At the moment, we're not going to honour them with names. Um, The plan is to call them after the Maori words for the colour of their tags. So we have ferro for red, pea for white, and kekorangi for blue. And so we'll be able to keep up with the progress of these birds later next year, actually, when they finally start heading north again. Yes, correct. We will get signals from them, as say, before they go, but there won't be much because we don't want to use up too much battery life on, on having them here, although it is interesting to see what they do while they're here. Last time we learned quite a lot about the patterns they follow flying around the Firth of Thames in order to feed, but what we'd really like is, well, to get one at least to go all not only up to the Arctic but to be able to track it coming back down here, as, as hopefully we'll be able to do with Jojo this time. Thanks, Jim. And we'll stay in touch with the Golden Plover team and bring you updates next year when Ferro, Taia and Kikorangi and hopefully four more tagged Kuriri by that stage, head off on their round-the-world travels. A big thanks to Jim Eagles, Keith Woodley and Amanda Hunt from the Pukoro Koro Miranda Shorebird Centre. And that's all we have time for tonight. You can listen to this story again and check out some photos of the Kuriri at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Don't forget... We're a podcast available on your favourite podcast app. And you can find us and many other great RNZ podcasts at the podcast tab on rnz.co.nz. There are a number of interesting new podcast series, including White Silence, which is about the Erebus disaster, and Conversations with My Immigrant Parents. Check them out. And don't forget, my chemistry podcast, Elemental, is still celebrating 150 years of the periodic table. We're up to titanium and tungsten. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. Until next time, it's goodnight from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai tōpō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.